0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know, it started out as a pretty good presidential day in 1975 for Gerald Ford, the president of the United States, receiving lines, handshakes, meeting the governor of California, balloons, and it ends with Ford in the back of a limo with Donald Rumsfeld on top of him with Secret Service agents too, lying on top of him, protecting him from potential bullet fire And getting to the airport as soon as he can to meet up with Betty Ford and get home. And he had to be thinking, this again? Another
1: day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: What have I done to deserve this? Why do these people want to kill me? Because just three weeks before, he was in the same situation. That time, a member of Manson's gang, Charles Manson's gang, Squeaky From, had put a revolver into his face and he saw the empty barrel. It didn't go off. Now as he left the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco, they've got him surrounded by cops, surrounded by agents, maxed out with security, but the security's around him, and across the street, there's a crowd, and he's waving to that crowd. There's no security in that crowd, and within that crowd is Sarah Jane Moore, and she's got a thirty-eight caliber revolver. Luckily, Ford comes out of the doorway with a bit of a dash, former football player, and the shot goes to where he was a few seconds ago and misses him by five inches. Hits the doorway. Sarah Jane Moore aims, wants to fire again. She's intending to start a world revolution here. That's her plan. What really happens is behind her is a former Marine, Oliver Sippel, who sees what she's doing. I lunged for her hand. Sippel's action deflects the shot. It does hit a taxi cab driver. He's going to be okay. Gives just enough time for a San Francisco police captain to take the gun for more. Cops swarm her. Reporters find Sippel and they want to talk to him. They want to get his name, his address. Uh, he doesn't want any publicity. He walks away. But he is known in the community and people know who it was. President Ford is shaken by this event. Almost traumatized, you could say. He tells a reporter. He is a reporter that followed him throughout his presidency and wrote down some of the things he said and published it after Ford died. And he said he was extremely shaken by this event. Looking into the barrel of a gun and hearing Fromm say it didn't go off. It didn't go off. And then for it to happen again. He writes a letter to Sippel. I appreciated your heartfelt act. You saved the lives of me and many others with your quick thinking. And the story might have ended there, except Sippel is an active member of San Francisco's gay community. He's known to Harvey Milk, who an activist who will become a councilman in San Francisco, the highest elected openly gay public official. It's 1975, and there's a lot of criticism of those who have this lifestyle, but he's in the most lenient city, perhaps, in the country. So Sippel doesn't want to talk to reporters. Milk, though, decides that this is too good of a story. You know, there are people who are saying that homosexuals are nothing but perverts. They can't be teachers. They're saying they're getting harassed. They're getting jailed. They're getting fired. People think that they're just men who hang out in bathrooms or molest children. That's what Milk says. This is too good of opportunity. There's too much riding on this. This is a man who just saved the president of the United States, and he, in effect, outs Oliver Sippel through a reporter named Herb Kanin. Uh, story goes out. Milk accuses Ford of lowering the kind of reception that somebody who was a hero like this might have got. It wasn't like Sipple was invited to the White House. He just gets a, a little letter. Come on. And that's probably because he's gay. Now, Ford totally denies that he had no idea of Sippel's identity at at all, his orientation or anything else. Milk out Sipple. Sipple didn't want to be outed. He has not told his family. He has not told his employer. His family doesn't take it well. When he calls his mother the next time, his mother hangs up on him. His father tells his brother, you don't have a brother anymore. Now, eventually Sippel will make it to a few family events. He's told not to bring your friends with you, uh, but it's never the same. Simple drinks a lot. He's diagnosed eventually with schizophrenia. He dies in 1989, found with a bottle of Jack Daniels, watching the television. Among the possessions found in Simple's apartment when he died is that framed letter from President Ford. Ford, for his part, sends a letter of sympathy, not only to Simple's family, but knowing that someone who's a gay person at this time has a family more than their biological family. And he sends a letter to the New Bell Saloon, where Sippel was known to hang out. I'm writing, in my sympathy for the loss of your friend, he says. Marshall Cummings had to be the worst criminal of the 1970s, maybe the worst criminal ever. He steals a purse, and when charged, he decides to represent himself, pro se. During his questioning, he says to his accuser, Did you get a good look at my face when I took your purse? The jury gives him 10 years. On appeal, he said, The judge should not have allowed me to represent myself. I'm incompetent. They take off five years. Bruce Springsteen commits what might have been a misdemeanor in 1976, but it's not punished or even arrested. Springsteen jumps over the gates of Graceland, along with guitarist Steve Vincent, and he wants to see Elvis. The trouble is, it's 3 a.m. Springsteen had just finished up a concert in Memphis. He rings the front doorbell after running from the gate. The guards intercept him, and he says, It's okay. It's okay. I'm a rock star. I've just been on the cover of Newsweek, man. Guards are not easily impressed. They are Elvis's guards, after all. and They do say, He's not here, and you need to leave now. They escort Springsteen and his guitarist to the sidewalk. They weren't lying. Elvis wasn't there to meet the boss. wasn't just the king of rock and roll that was getting surprising visitors. Bob Dylan decides in the 1970s to leave his Woodstock, New York home. He's been up there since before it became famous for having that concert, which put it on the map. And now Dylan's getting what he calls the Night of the Living Dead. Everyone knows he's living up there. It's spooky in the woods, unaccountable looking characters, gargoyle girls, gate crashers, demagogues, coming to visit his house. His wife and his children live there. He does what he thinks is familiar and right, and he returns to New York City. Now, you know, if you haven't lived or know a lot about New York City, you might think that's crazy. There's millions of people living there. But New York's attitude to celebrities most times seems to be, well, just leave them alone or even... I don't really care if you're Bob Dylan or whatnot. And I think that's what he's thinking when he moves to MacDougal Street, not far from where he got his start in the folk scene. It does improve things a little, because it's a little more secure. There's no gargoyles in the night, but he does get an unwanted fan. A record store owner that Bob Dylan knows also knows a fellow named A.J. Weberman, how best best describe him. Uh, music critic. I mean, sort of. Writing for a rag called The East Side Other. And the record store owner says, oh, Dylan's moving just a few blocks from you. Oh, really? See, A.J. Webberman has already figured himself out to be a kind of Dylanologist. He's making his primary concern deciphering Dylan's lyrics. His apartment is littered with stuff, all kinds of memorabilia, song lyrics, albums. He's constantly getting high on Colombian pot and other things and makes wild interpretations of Dylan's music, which he writes in The Locals in the East Side Other. Dylan, he thinks, has abandoned any kind of political music. He needs to get back to what his true roots are. And the more that Weberman thinks about it, the more irritated he is. In fact, he's reading in some of these lyrics that Dylan is a secret capitalist. He's abandoned the left and he's criticizing the left. He's a little bit on Dylan's radar, Weberman is, but finds it an annoyance. At one point, he comes to the apartment. Dylan tells him to talk to his manager. Dylan tells Rolling Stone, oh, that's that guy interpreting my lyrics. He's all wrong. Now, All Along the Watchtower is not about Allen Ginsberg. Dylan's attitude seems to be what we might say, you know, don't feed the trolls. One point Dylan tells him, why don't you just get a guitar and sing your own songs? He doesn't want a long dialogue and discussion about his songs, period. And he certainly doesn't want to be arguing when he tells him, why don't you just write your own songs? Weberman says, no, I have to do this. You have to write about injustice. There are people locked up that shouldn't be. So Dylan's trying the hard ignore, and there's some phone calls between Dylan and Weberman throughout the seventies that Weberman records. Eventually, will release as an album.
2: Well, I was. Gonna, I had the article. I called you before, man. You weren't home. I had the article in front of me. I left yeah. the article at the studio. But there's some lies in there, man. I couldn't believe it. Want me to read the article now? Yeah. I was really. Uh, no, no, no. It's a stunt like around in the. Uh, In the like third, fourth page, third or fourth page, one, two, three. Someone taken aback by the I told him there's all this evidence in your poetry, so we talked. Dylan said he didn't take the panthers because of that position on the media situation, little Israel versus all those. I started to explain
0: how Dylan doesn't know he's being recorded.
2: No, I didn't say I didn't take any tape. What I I did was I typed out. uh, my recollections of, uh, our conversation together. And I'm going to use it as an interview. I'm going to send it out to every underground paper in America for free. Rather than selling it to, uh... You didn't tell me that was any interview. Oh uh, well, didn't you like, uh, didn't you... Really... Hey, man, you want to have an interview with me? Let me know, I'll give you an interview. Don't take, uh... Okay, 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 fine. I was going to let you see it beforehand, and, uh... Because I realized that you know, it wasn't taped, and I don't want to misquote you and put words in your mouth. Well, what about the tape? You got a tape, no, in the, tape in your jacket? No tape, no tape. I didn't have a tape in my jacket. I don't have the money for uh, one of those concealed tape recorders.
0: Weberman takes it up a step. I think also Dylan is a junkie. His lyrics are about heroin. I think he started to take heroin. Dylan now responds. He sees him on the street. And says, uh, why are you calling me a junkie? And Weberman's like, well, are you? Dylan rolls up his sleeves. Look, there's no tracks on my arms. Weberman sees it. He describes it later when he's in a better, let's say, state of mind and talking about these events that uh, I saw it. He didn't have any tracks, but I still didn't believe him. His eyes weren't like the kind of glassy eyes like a drug addict might have, but I still didn't believe him. And it wasn't till I got home that I decided, I know what he's doing. He's shooting up through his legs, trying to fool me. Oh, the conspiratorial mind. This is where Weberman starts a new tactic, one that'll put him in Dylan lore now. He goes through Dylan's garbage. Why? Well, because I was kicked out of his apartment, Weberman says. And even for a stalker troll, this is interesting, you know, Weberman's got rules. He sees another guy, a would-be Dylan Stalker, trying to go up Dylan's fire escape. Who stops him? Weberman. That's against the law, man. That's breaking an entry. Troll's got rules, I guess. But the rules don't apply to garbage. He sees Dylan's garbage pails, and these are kind of the old metal-type garbage pails that everybody in New York City would have had at that time. He figures out which one's Or Dylan's. And he goes through them. What a haul. Immediately. A suggested track list for a new album. A letter Dylan wrote to his mother. And then a half-written letter never sent to Johnny Cash. Holy cow. This is going to be great for his interpretation of lyrics. And finding all of those secret motives behind Dylan. And finding out why he won't address the politics of today anymore. And here's where... The story at least goes. It's been printed in Rolling Stone. There's a lot of different uh, takes on it. The source is Weberman, so you got to be careful. There's a story that Dylan finds Weberman in the alley of his street. He's had it with him, rifling through his garbage, coming after his family, and he shoves his head into the sidewalk. I deserved it, Weberman would say later. Nixon decides he wants to make a change. The White House guards, they aren't fancy enough. He wants them to wear shako hats, like Mexican war soldiers or people of that era might. White tunics with gold trim. They look positively Napoleonic. The reaction's not good. A newspaper reporter says they look like extras from a Lithuanian movie. They're laughingstocks. And first, the hats go... Then a month later, the tunics go, then the uniforms entirely, and they are put in storage. Eventually, the White House guard uniforms are sold to a high school marching band, to a high school marching band. These are different stories that I found, in the, and the connection to them is they all take place in the 1970s. But I think they give us, um, like anything I'll talk about here, there's some connection to different aspects of politics today. Some might just be interesting. Um, Some of it starts with um, an episode I did two years ago on the 1976 um, Carter, the uh, Carter's Convention in 1976. And I had these little vignettes and and I didn't use everything. So uh, I'll talk a bit about an artist and a bit about Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali and other things. We're going to talk about a school that erupted in racial violence over issues still present today about the use of Confederate symbols. Talk about a pop band that didn't go very far. And we're going to find a way to mention David Letterman and David Grohl somehow. I'm going to find a way to talk about David Letterman and David Grohl somehow. Hope you enjoy it.
2: It's synthetic. It's tinsel. It's like Hollywood. It's like shampoo, as Warren Beatty portrayed it. And it's, it's a kind of sad thing because the nomination of a presidential candidate and a vice presidential candidate, as we've learned, it's a terribly, terribly serious thing.
0: A California artist, Robert Irwin, decided that rather do a sculpture. This is, this is in the 70s, in the time of minimalism. And minimalism, you know, starts with, a, well, there's a lot of people, but one of the more famous examples is Donald Judd and those cubes. You know, you just have a sculpture of cubes, and people would look at them and, and be amazed, like, wow, this could be art. And then it almost became to where now, when people see cubes, they expect it. And I think by the time you get to the 70s, Robert Irwin is deciding that, well, the museum floor and wall in which he was to place his sculpture could actually be the art itself. He sees a large skylight at the end of one of the walls in a California museum and says, this, this is it. This is the art. The space where the art is to take place is art. Now, he doesn't just bring people into a room to look at the skylight in an empty museum room. You know, although I, I'm sure someone has done something like that. He does do something that is an artist action. He stretches a piece of white fabric. It's translucent from the ceiling to the floor. And you kind of see the, um, the way that the skylight's light shines through this fabric but that's really all he does this is the exhibit and the result is kind of science fiction light Um, you know the the, the museum lights in this particular room are off and so you just get this natural light and it forces you to pay attention to what normally you would not pay attention to the corner of a room in the museum now with this veil you know and it it does kind of look cool Sure, now it's sort of done already and no one would try it again. But I was thinking about him and uh, his exhibit. Not that I know much about Irwin, but I have a book called Pictures of Nothing, which is a good look at minimalist art. And I remembered that and I remembered thinking, well, what if I in my next cast could concentrate a little more on all the other things rather than the main story? The main story, of course, is Jimmy Carter gets nominated And he will eventually win the election. His convention gives him a lead of 30 points. Uh, He had something like 20 in some of the polls before. He gets 30 points against Ford after that convention. And it is the wisdom of many politicos that that convention was the best ever, the best run ever. And it's especially in contrast to Ford and Reagan in 76 in Kansas City, out-and-out fight, which is a disaster for them. I wanted to capture this convention, and also I read a piece about how there were no Carter books because Carter came on the scene in like in the national scene, to the extent that anyone in a publisher in New York is going to be talking about Carter February, March, April of '76, maybe. No one had time to write a book, so Richard Reeves, uh, you know, says, "Oh, the convention is going to be the story here," and determines to write it. And I read that reference. I said, "I got to get a hold of that book." Got a hold of it, and it is some great little stories, to give the vignettes, to give the perspective of so many different people experiencing this convention in the way they did. In effect, to show you that skylight at the end of the museum. Did I achieve it? Maybe. But that was the intention. So one thing that um, I didn't get to use more of, just because the Carter 76 convention episode got to be so big, I had more of the five-day bicycle the Manhattan Cable show, including a lot more Howard Cosellig.
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Here's the guys actually going. These young people with this old archaic TV equipment going to uh, Howard Cosell's uh, apartment in New York City to interview him. So you have the doorman and everything.
2: What's your name? I'm Elon, and this is Bill Marquette. Bill Pett. Bill Marquette. Mr. Cosell, Bill Marquette is here. Set him up. Okay. Okay, Bill. What room is that? 27M. 27 27M. 27 Thank, Thank you. you. Here we go. We got it. politics and in the midst of all of this Vietnam the unending unwanted war that cost so many American lives all of this somehow pervaded the American society and understandably so and so the American people became absorbed with politics it seems to me and the importance of elections to a far greater degree than they ever would have and yet not concomitantly, but contradictorily, uh, registrations went down. Voting interest went down. But that relates most directly to the loss of faith in government and uh, general disgust on the part of the American public. But and uh, something sad about it. Because it only lasts for a few days. It's synthetic, it's tinseled. It's like Hollywood, it's like shampoo. ...as Warren Beatty portrayed it. And it's it's a kind of sad thing... ...because the nomination of a presidential candidate... ...and a vice presidential candidate, as we've learned... ...is a terribly, terribly serious thing. Now, I don't mean that people shouldn't come... ...to the greatest city of all and enjoy themselves. Nothing of the sort. But I don't think they should let themselves go, either. Out of hand. So that perspectives are lost... And so that the real basic purpose of the occasion is diminished in its seriousness. This country cannot long afford the past 15 years that it's gone through. It just can't continue. And I think that if somebody comes in without derogation of any particular state or region or nothing like that intended from Des Moines, or Winston-Salem, my birthplace, or wherever, and is in for just a good time without serious thought about a party platform, about the nominees, without a subterranean awareness of everything that all of us have been through in the recent years. And I think the whole elective process has to be reexamined. There's a whole other thing. It seems as though the politics is a ritual and the television, in a way, is a deciding factor in what's happening. And even then, even though the Nielsen's may be very high for political coverage, only 12% of the people come down to vote. Well, what out of all of that is your question? I'm just, I'm not really looking
0: for... It's got to be a little hard to interview Cosell. Okay, so there's a lot there in uh, Cosell's commentary. And one of which is, you know, when he talks about voter turnout being down despite the interest in politics going up, you also have to remember that this is after the 26th Amendment was passed, and that led to the largest decline in percentage voter turnout of anything because the, there was all of these new young people voting, but a lot of them just simply did not vote. And it took a while to get turnout up, really, until the 90s, until Clinton was president, that it even went up. So I feel that if I'm on the convention floor, I
2: could take the whole of my background in academia, at law, and the whole of my interview capacities. It's 1976. And uh, at the same time, relate that to the greater common denominator for the American people, which is sport, and use it irreverentially, satirically, and uh, draw a great deal Many more viewers to the ABC coverage, because ABC is my network, of the conventions. And that's what I'd like to do in answer to your question and why I'd like to do it. But I don't know that that will ever eventuate. Well, I hope it does. I think it'd be interesting to see. Well, I hope it does, but I suspect I'm stigmatized forevermore in the trade phraseology
0: as just a sports guy. <laughs> In 1964, Muhammad Ali failed the United States Armed Forces qualifying test. his writing and spelling skills weren't up to par. By 1965, the army had reclassified those, and he was made 1A in February 1966. It meant that he could be eligible for the draft, was notified of his status, and he said he would refuse to serve. War is against the teachings of the Holy Quran, he said. I'm not trying to dodge the draft. We're not supposed to take part in wars unless declared by Allah or the messenger. He challenges his status, and he wants to be reclassified as a Muslim minister. This is denied. He does appear for induction to the U.S. Army, April 28, 1967, and refuses three times to step forward at the call of his name. An officer warned him he was committing a felony punishable by five years in prison and a fine of 10000 He still refuses to budge when his name is called. That same day, New York, its athletic commission, suspends his boxing license. And the World Boxing Association strips him of the heavyweight title. He was indicted and convicted. In 1968, appeals court confirms the decision. Muhammad Ali gets support from sportscaster Howard Cosell. Here he is on the, uh, Geraldo show.
1: When I became uh, a Howard Cosell fan was when you took your what I thought heroic stance in the Muhammad Ali case to get him to, uh, yeah, you, you should applaud. It was really kind of a, a bad scene. He was stripped of the title for, uh, for dubious reasons, and you were one of the only prominent sports announcers to, uh, well, to pick up the ball for him.
2: Yeah, but you used the wrong word, in my opinion, Geraldo. When you say heroic, it was simply and purely a matter of constitutional law two constitutional amendments were violated the fifth because he didn't have due process exhausted at the time and the 14th where he was denied equal protection under the laws by new york state athletic commission and it's uh, dubious to use your adjectival expression commissioner who's very much unacquainted with constitutional law he was licensing deserters from the army to fight while he wouldn't license muhammad ali so it didn't take courage
0: it took some knowledge Now, this goes to the Supreme Court as to whether Ali can be considered conscientious objector. Something interesting happens in the history of the court, according to Bob Woodward's The Brethren. It's going to be decided against Ali. The votes are there, and Chief Justice Warren Berger is in charge of assigning the decision. Assigns John Harlan, and Harlan's clerk is starting to write a draft opinion. He's reading the opinion of another clerk who had read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And said that, you know, according to all the trusted texts of the black Muslim movement, they're against war. But what had been argued in oral argument is Senator General Griswold said that um, it's not a conscientious objector. What Ali even says if Viet Cong were attacking his people, Muslims could become involved in the war, but they weren't. And that's why he doesn't want to fight. That's different from being uh, like a Quaker totally opposed to war or something like that. We don't have to go to war unless they're declared by Allah himself. That's still opening grounds for war. So according to Solicitor General Griswold, he's got no business claiming CO status and he should go to jail. Harlan, uh, you know, kind of tells his clerk to take a hike, but he does decide to read it, what the clerk said. He reads the background materials and sits down in, uh, an illuminated library of his Georgetown townhouse. And the next morning, he has a surprising announcement. He said he read all the materials. He believed that the government mistakenly painted Ali as racist, misinterpreting the doctrine that is common to the black Muslims, despite the department's own hearing examiner finding that they are sincerely opposed to all wars. The Justice Department was adding their own interpretation. And, you know, Ali's quotes are not helpful. Warren Berger, who just assigned the decision to the, to this justice, is behind, beside himself. How could he shift sides without notifying him? The draft said that black Muslim doctrine teaches that Islam is the religion of peace and that war-making is the habit of the race of devils. The whites and Islam forbids its members to carry arms or any kind. You want to put that in a Supreme Court decision, this kind of thinking? But there's one thing that you can't take away. It's not just that Harlan's writing the decision and wants to write it a certain way. You've lost his vote. And now it's 4-4. It's tied. But on a 4-4 vote, Ali would still go to jail. But here's the thing. The Supreme Court would never give a reason why. There would never be precedent. There would never be anything to say about So it was as if the Supreme Court didn't decide the matter. And then why did they take it up? Why did they grant cert? It just looked terrible for the court. So really, the chief's in a quandary over this. He's not going to shift his opinion. Neither are Hugo Black, Byron White, or Harry Blackman, who are against Ali in this. You know, they're really angry about Harlan's switch. They're saying, you know, Harlan's viewpoint, if put in this decision, that means anyone who's a black Muslim right now can be eligible for conscientious objector status. So... It's Lewis Powell that proposes, as it, you know, he did in a lot of cases, a alternative. The court could simply order to set Ali free and say there was a technical error by the Justice Department. This way, there's no precedent. They're not finding that error. They're not finding that all black Muslims are conscientious objectors. They're just setting Ali free, and that's what they agree to do. So Ali's nearly sent to prison. And that just emphasizes what a stand it was that Howard Cosell took involved in politics, a sportscaster involved in politics. February 5th, 1976, at Escambia County High School in Florida. It is not a normal day of learning. There's a fight. It starts with a few scuffles, pushing and shoving at lockers, and turns into a full riot. Teachers can't control it. The principal is overwhelmed. It's said that some three-quarters of the school's population are involved in this fight. And this is a school with 2,523 students. Windows are smashed. Trophy cases are broken. Soon, every area of the school is in open riot. It soon becomes clear. It's not just students fighting. There are relatives of students, friends in their 20s, coming to the high school campus to join in. One of them has a gun, at least one of them. A truckload of knives is going to be found when they search the school afterwards. Also, bats, metal objects, clubs, and bricks. And this riot goes on for four hours. 26 students are injured. There's $5,000 in property damage in 1976 dollars. Among those injured includes one suffering severed tendons in his right hand when he runs through a broken plate glass door to escape the violence. He was 16 years old, and his family had just fled fighting in Vietnam the past June. Now here in the promised land of the United States, he's encountering violence at school. Four students are hit by gunfire in the school. One of them is the school's football quarterback. Six teenagers are charged with assault. Now, there's a thing you might say, well, that's why in the modern times we have police in the school. Well, they do in Escambia County High School. Sheriff's deputies called in by the principal because of a lot of fighting that occurred before. They're unable to stop anything. Maybe some suggest they don't want to. The reason for the fighting is clearly race. The school song is Dixie. The school had been desegregated in 1968, and nearly a quarter of the student body is African American now. They don't want this song playing. It's not 1964. It's 1976. The school had a team whose mascot was the Rebel and Colonel Reb, just like in the University of Mississippi, would come out during games and the band would play Dixie. It's embarrassing to them, but it's more than that. There had been a local police brutality incident and just in general, the students feel discriminated against. Some say this is crazy. This is a nation of laws, not violence. But the odd thing is, Scambia High School had already been through the court system many times, including federal courts. It seems to start during one of the football games in the fall of 1972. African-American students riot on the football field after they hear the beginning of the song, Dixie. The local NAACP, local groups, some of the students and parents take the school to court. And this is what the court's decision says. This is a United States district court in July 1973. All symbols, such as Confederate flags playing Dixie rebels as mascots, are racially irritating. In this situation, the court says, the use of symbols is not unlike the fighting words condemned in Chaplinsky v. New Hampshire and is especially dangerous in light of the numerical strength of the white students at this school. On the evidence before it, the court finds that the use of the Confederate battle flag by individual students was a source of violence and disruption at the school, and that the tensions surrounding the symbols have not subsided but likely have increased and will continue. Under these circumstances, the wearing or displaying of the Confederate battle flag by individual students while attending school or at school activity should be prohibited. Well, okay then. The school has to comply. They changed the name of the team from the Rebels to the Raiders. The school board appeals this decision in 1975. The United States Courts of Appeals rules in favor that the school board may choose their own mascots and songs and overturns this court decision. This leads for a call to return the football team to the name Rebels and increase tensions within the school. They decide, okay, We're going to throw it to the students to decide how to vote, but we're going to say they need to be three-fourths of the students. It has to be overwhelming to change the name of the team. If three-fourths of the student body want to go back to the name Rebels instead of Raiders, we will approve it. They failed to get that supermajority by 30 votes. Okay, team's name is the Raiders. Not good enough. 300 students were absent on that day, and they're not allowed to cast ballots. They protest, and it is this protest, walking through the school, that leads to a riot that lasts for four days. But it's not just this. Tension had been extreme. There were groups of white students who, if they found a lone black student, would harass them. There's a state legislature during this time, Reuben Smokey Peden, who used to be a police officer. Now he's a politician. Elected to the Florida House of Representatives. The riots take place while he's in office. And he is a fellow and a fellow legislator, W.D. Childers, voiced sympathy for white students and parents. You know, they do go around and talk to some of the black students and their parents. But we're trying, they said, to explain the seriousness of the feelings of the white students and the seriousness of the white backlash to them. Don't they understand? These are important symbols. Peyton says this to the local NAACP, and he blames the violence on thugs. He uses words that many people attribute to racial coding. Really steps up when the football players had put the rebel flag on their helmets, and black students decide they don't want to stand for the playing of Dixie. Why should they? It's not their song. It's a song sang by people who are attacking the United States. No, that's not true. Representative Childer says, it was written by a northerner. And also, nobody's complaining about a school that's named after Booker T. Washington. These are things that are said. Look, it's 1976. There's scuffles, there's fights between white and black students. The principal cancels classes for two days, just closes school, calls sheriff deputies to the school. Groups of white students march up and down the halls of the school singing Dixie and waving the battle flag. And I like that word using the term battle flag, because that's not the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag flying over Fort Sumter, right, is, is the, that's a different flag. Uh, but in any, any case, what we went, the, the thing we associate as the Confederate flag is actually the rebel battle flag. It gets really hot uh, after this riot when a member of a civil rights human advisory board who lives in the town, her house is burned down. A few blocks away is Representative Peden's house. And his house is also burned to the ground, apparently, in retaliation. So you see here, racial conflict, that is, uh, I don't want to say it's two-sided, because I think it's lopsided in ways, but it's not just people passively standing and saying, hit me, they're fighting back. What'll happen after this is parents of black students will withhold their kids from the school. And this is a problem, because the state provides funding per student, but it will withhold if the student's not in school in January. And the local NAACP chapter knows this. That's $40,000 in funding in those times lost to the school. A compromise is reached, a moratorium is placed on the playing of Dixie, and the school would eventually change its name to the Gators. The seventies probably had a different vision of what tomorrow in outer space would look like. There was really an intention for people to live in space for a long period of time. And that's why Skylab is sent up into space by NASA in 1973 with so much promise to conduct experiments, provide living quarters for up to three astronauts. And that crew would rotate so that there was always someone living in this space station that would be circling the Earth. It was 118 feet tall and it weighed 77 tons. The crews that went to Skylab conducted experiments There were 200,000 pictures of the sun and its solar flares taken. But the real deal is that NASA wanted to see how the human body would deal with weightlessness over long periods of time. And Skylab, really more than anything that's been built since, was designed to be a kind of home. You know, looking at it, it almost looks like a space-age house. The astronauts would be strapped into this triangular table. There's no hierarchy up in space. And there's a porthole window where they're eating. Um, They wanted them to be comfortable. Things are packed neatly into drawers so that there's room to walk around the vehicle. There's also... A to walk around the Skylab. There's also a place where they can take a shower in space. That's a first. By 1978, though, a problem develops. Skylab's orbit was off. This was due to unanticipated solar flares affecting the orbit. So Skylab is winding down, and if nothing is done, it's going to slowly leave space and re-enter Earth's atmosphere, and then fall. God knows where, onto the Earth. Like some 77-ton cannon fired from the sky, hitting somewhere. NASA developed Skylab to go up. It hadn't designed it to go down. It hadn't designed any kind of navigation system to land it. Why? Because in 1973, cost was a concern. It would have affected the cost too much. They had anticipated they had nine years in order to figure out some solution. You know, getting the astronauts is not a problem. It can, There can be launch modules, rockets that can go up there. So the agency decides it would employ a new tool to help get Skylab earlier than planned and also send some repair equipment, boost it up higher into the orbit, get another five years out of Skylab, the space shuttle, which is started in the Nixon administration As a way to have constant trips back and forth that can both take off and land from the Earth. It's a reusable space vehicle. But funding and other snafus delayed the space shuttle project. So it's just not a solution for the Skylab problem. Um, It never really would be the kind of space shuttle that they wanted it to be. Its missions were few and far in between and there were supposed to be many missions in each year. And it wouldn't be launched anyway to the beginning of the Reagan administration, April 1981. So no time to save Skylab. So July 11th, 1979, as Skylab is rapidly descending from orbit, engineers fire the station's booster rockets, sending it into a tumble that they hoped would bring it down into the Indian Ocean. And they were close. So as this crash is approaching in June 1979 there's SkyLab inspired parties there's SkyLab products there's even people having SkyLab sales there's a lot of focus on it and in Missouri there's the SkyLab Watchers and Gourmet Dinner Society announcing plans to view SkyLab's last orbit during a garden grad gathering in which hard hats or similar protective head gear were required now skylab wasn't supposed to hit missouri but there was all kinds of speculation the charlotte north carolina news observer reported that a local hotel designated itself as an official skylab crash zone complete with a painted target and was holding a poolside skylab disco party because of nasa's inability to say precisely where it would land nasa did come up with a debris map but it stretched over a pretty large period a pretty large area. Entrepreneurs all over the country sold T-shirts emblazoned with large bull eyes waiting for Skylab. Another entrepreneur, another enterprising individual, took a different tack and sold cans of Skylab repellent, while newspapers joked that it might be worthwhile to sell Skylab insurance. One newspaper offered a bounty of $10,000 to anyone that found a piece of Skylab thinking their circulation was reaching mostly America, where they wouldn't have to pay. And that's where this story takes a turn, because in 1979, you can see NASA's the most important space agency. The United States is the free world, right, is the, the most important country in world affairs, And it's like, oh, Skylab is falling, let's have a disco party by the pool. In Europe, people are pretty nervous. After all, there had been the year before, in 1978, a Soviet satellite hits northern Canada and scatters uranium across the grassland there. NASA assures people Skylab has no radioactive components, but not everybody believes that, And not everyone believes their debris map. And when NASA said the risk of human injury from Skylab coming down was just one in 152. First of all, I don't know that that's a high enough number to give anybody confidence. And second, all, well, no one believed it. Or few did. Here's the Glasgow Herald. Worried holidaymakers in Devon, England are taking no chances. They plan to sit out the morning in an old smuggler's cave. In Belgium, they set up 1,250 air raid sirens in the event that Skylab rained wreckage across the Belgian countryside. But it's really in Australia. They're pretty concerned. And also in India. In India, in Karimnagar, Nagar, July 11th and July 12th. Well, they're getting these reports that America's sending the space station down and saying everything's go okay. okay, we're just sending it into the Indian Ocean and maybe it'll hit land nearby. People are starting to think it's going to fall right in India. Some farmers are leaving their property, selling their property for a cheap price. Some can't even sell. A few sell their cows, their cattle. Some go to temples and distant places to pray. This according to an Indian newspaper looking at the event 20 years later. Now, when Skylab does hit the Earth, July 12, 1979, NASA is mostly right. Most of Skylab either burns in the atmosphere as planned or plunges into the Indian Ocean. Some pieces are scattered across Western Australia. No one in the ground was hit. No property damage is actually reported, but a few pieces are found. And after that newspaper offered the $10,000 bounty, a group of Australians got fragments from a sheep grazing field and took it over to the United States to try and claim the prize. The Baladonia Local Shire Council in Australia issues NASA a $400 littering fine. The fine, apparently has never been paid. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like
2: Delight.
0: If you're in the D.C. area, and it's the bicentennial of the country, as it was in 1976, you're going to tend to see some fireworks. And you might say not fireworks, but skyrockets. Bill Danoff and his wife, Taffy Nisbet, live in the D.C. area and have been performing at local venues, little cafes in Georgetown or other areas. Sometimes they call themselves Bill and Taffy. And they've gotten quasi-famous by writing a song for John Denver that he performed called Country Roads. They perform it themselves. And they got a mini record contract. Now they're looking for more inspiration. And they get it in a strange place right in front of them. They're eating at Clyde's Bar in Georgetown. I've been there. Nice little place. Here. And Danoff remembers it was after lunch. And from 3 to 6, they had these table tents out that said, Afternoon Delights about a little menu of like four items, little snacks that you could order. And I thought it would be a neat title for the song, Danoff remembers. They were lucky enough to have a record contract. They had two sides, two songs to add. Why don't we try a vocal group? And so they do. We want it to be from Washington. We all live here. So Danoff comes up with this sort of imaginary place, Starland. As one of the band members says, I don't think it had anything to do with the aspirations of stardom, but I think it came to me because the flags, all of the stars on the flags, Starland, and the strong connection to fireworks, 1976, D.C. area, accustomed to various celebrations. And so the line skyrockets in flight seems natural. Afternoon Delight, this unlikely song, in a time where it's really disco music topping those charts a song that you can't easily dance to, becomes the number one song. Larry Rother of the Washington Post says, Impressive without instruments, perhaps better with them. That's the best way to describe the Starland Vocal Band and their very promising debut recording. I suspect the Starland Vocal Band is going to have a lot to do with the shape of pop music over the next few years. They use their voices as voices, rather than an excuse for somebody to play guitar. So says William Wood of the Washington Post. The song's so popular, an odd thing happens. TV networks take notice of this kind of Heartland, Starland band, and they sign the band for a series of six-hour TV shows to be aired in the summer of 1977. To avoid being the type of typical variety show, they structured the Starland's vocal band show around... Places they go. They have an event at Georgetown University. They have clubs that they play at, like the Cellar Door. Uh, They go to Clyde's. And they have local comedians like Mark Russell who perform on this variety show. And they recruit a host, a young David Letterman. With everyone singing their song, it seemed like the Starland Vocal Band had everything. But there was one issue. The song was getting played a lot. And people remembered the song, but no one knew the name of the group. When they released their next single, it charted at number 66, where Afternoon Delight had reached number one. And their TV show was not a hit and quickly got canceled. One member of the band said, I was aware of how much that song got played. I was also aware of a portion of the audience and the programming entities on various radio stations that just considered it not a cool record. One member of the band was told by a friend, I got to apologize to you. I was painting when the song came on, after they played it 300 times. I threw the paintbrush at the radio. That was one of her friends. Climate change was an issue in the 1970s. It's not a new thing necessarily. There's a lot of concern about man-made pollution. And there was reason to be because some of the laws and procedures hadn't been enacted yet. What direction was the temperature going? That was in dispute, though not as much as some pundits would have us think. Here's the confusing part. A headline in 1975 Newsweek says, The Cooling World. Yes, a had line in Newsweek said it. And another one in Time says something similar. And it's a classic thing that doesn't age well, according to scientists now, that they were thinking because of aerosols to blame, the atmosphere was going to cool. Here's a line from the Newsweek article. The central fact is that after three quarters of a century of extraordinary mild condition, the earth seems to be cooling down. Meteorologists disagree about the cause and extent of the cooling trend as well as over the specific impact on local weather conditions. Now, these two headlines have been brought back in current times by many pundits to say, see, scientists are all mixed up. In the 70s, they said it was going to cool. Now they say it's going to warm. They were predicting an ice age then. That's what Time Magazine did. It's not exactly true. What the truth is, is it seems to be more about what popular publications were saying in the 1970s versus some of the studies. Only a small fraction of studies predicted this aerosol cooling trend, and it received a lot more media attention in the 1970s because the idea of a forthcoming ice age was easier for people to understand and made for better stories. But the cooling prediction was held only by a small amount of scientists has since been abandoned. One of the authors from a paper that was released in 1971 describing this aerosol Cooling trend said, I personally published what was wrong with my own original 1971 cooling hypothesis a few years later, and when more data and better models came along, the analysis showed warming much more likely. Even the author of that Newsweek story, Gwyn, said, uh, Certain websites and individuals that dispute, disparage, and deny the science shows what's going on. Continue to quote my article. And the message is, how can we believe climatologists who tell us it's warming when their colleagues actually say it's cooling? But that was 1975. and 39 years since, biotechnology has flowered. The first test tube baby has been born. In fact, that baby has had a child. Cosmologists have learned that the universe is expanding rather than slowing down. Newsweek has become a shadow of its former self. (laughs) He's right about that. And on the climate front, Gwynne says, the vast majority of climatologists now assure us The Earth's atmosphere is not cooling. It's warming up. The main responsibility is human activity. But it's not just his article. Even in the 70s, the 1979 World Climate Conference, the meteorological organization, concluded that it appears plausible that an increased amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere can contribute to a gradual warming of the lower atmosphere. The United States National Research Council publishes the report the same year when it's assumed that the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere has doubled. By the time Carter is president, there's a memorandum that goes to him. 1977 memo from Frank Press. Frank Press warns of the possibility of a catastrophic climate change. But other issues, such as pollutants, avoiding energy dependence on other countries, see more pressing and immediate. Energy Secretary James Schlesinger advises the policy implications of this issue are still too uncertain to warrant presidential involvement and policy initiatives. It's been a while since I posted that episode on the 1976 convention, and I will probably rerun it around the time of the 2024 conventions. It just makes the most sense. But it, it was a pastiche, if you will, of different things going on and wanted to capture the atmosphere, just like a kind of Robert Irwin um, involve the background in the subject, just like a Robert Irwin piece of art, I guess. In that, I left out some things, and there's some that are important to events today.
2: Did you know that
1: the heart of an unborn baby begins to be formed at three weeks after conception?
0: And one of the, it is that 1976 is the first presidential election after the Roe v. Wade decision. And so you see both a total change in American politics, because the court has now ruled a constitutional right for abortion, and also the beginnings of a movement that you're going to see go right up to 2022 and this most recent court decision.
1: I'm Ellen McCormick, a Democratic candidate for president. Help me to keep these hearts beating. Together, we can help both the mother and her baby.
0: But at the time of 1976's presidential election, in certain circles, I have a quote from a woman that was part of the National Organization for Women. She's at the Democratic convention, Previously, in the 1972 convention, they could not get this issue. and National Organization of Women had to fight to get inside the building. At the Democratic National Convention in New York in 1976, they're part of the convention. They've raised enough money to get uh, delegates to pay their expenses. They've raised enough money to have um, phone systems. They're lobbying hard for the Equal Rights Amendment. Because when it comes time to the down to the abortion issue, Court's already decided it's it's been taken out of politics, at least so everyone's thinking at this time. The right to lifers, Joe Freeman says who has this uh, website describing the 1976 Democratic National Convention in New York, they had a table outside the Hilton and they felt outside. Their march was scheduled for Sunday, and I standing in Central Park Sheep's Meadow watching a few thousand of the faithful gather far less than the one hundred thousand they had expected. This was the fabled mainstream. They looked it and they talked it. But they were confused and puzzled by the events of the last few years. They were no longer the numerical majority and no longer felt they shared the same outlook. Vote Ellen McCormick in the Democratic presidential primary as those in positions of power. They ran Ellen McCormick for president because none of the major candidates was actively supporting their position. When she was being nominated Wednesday night, two dozen delegations hoisted freedom of choice banners. And so it's true that outside the convention at 8th Avenue, all of these groups, the right to lifers, communists, gay rights activists, they have a march of Sunday at the convention, um, and 600 delegates or alternates sign a declaration of support for the gay rights convention. But party officials were not very receptive and did not make them a caucus of the Democratic Party. They had caucuses for many things, different ethnic groups, labor, women, but they refused to do that in 1976 for gays. Give us a list of 100 delegates who want to attend. We'll give you the room. And no other caucuses had this demand made of them. So you see that... at that time in 1976, you have this candidate, Ellen McCormick, running as the right-to-life candidate. She gets about 22 delegates or so. She'll run in 1980 as third-party candidate. Now, on the Republican side, it is different. Reagan comes out flatly against abortion and is in favor of a constitutional amendment outlawing abortion. He does say at this time in 76, in except in rare cases posing a clear risk to the woman's life. Ford says the Supreme Court went too far and advocates a constitutional amendment to allow each state to decide. It is interesting, after the decision, and when the campaign of 1976 gets off, there's an issue that 75% of Democrats who vote in primaries in New Hampshire, a very important first state, are Catholic. Jimmy Carter gets the question a lot, and he says, I personally oppose abortion, but I support the Supreme Court decision legalizing it. Birch Bayh, who's running for president from Indiana, is getting protested by anti-abortion demonstrators because he worked against a constitutional amendment that would have outlawed most abortions. Sergeant Shriver said he does not favor overturning the Supreme Court decision, but proposes setting up life support centers to counsel women seeking abortions on whether or not to really have the operation. That would be a position, and this is a great liberal Right, ran on the ticket with McGovern in 72, friend to the Kennedys. That's a position that would be considered pretty conservative today and that some states have adopted. My point being that um, one thing that's revealed, and I left it out of that 76 cast, is that there's the abortion protesters, for the most part, are relegated to the fringes of politics. But like the woman from the National Organization for Women who's describing it, you could have just gone a few years before, and they were the main. They were just sp- supposed to be the position that you would have. And then they were on the outs. An outbreak of pneumonia occurs among people attending a convention of the American Legion at the Belvered Stratford Hotel in Philadelphia. There's 182 reported cases from this hotel from this legion meeting and 29 people die. The cause of the agent was identified as a previously unknown strain of bacteria, a bacteria. And now it's named Legionella. It can survive in badly treated ventilation systems. And we don't think that the 1976 incident was the first. After the discovery, unexplained outbreaks of severe respiratory disease from even the 1950s were retrospectively attributed to what is now called Legionnaire's disease. On November 3rd, 1975, Secretary of the Treasury, William Simon, announces the reissuance of the $2 bill. Why? Because of inflation. With inflated prices... People are using too many dollars cost the government a lot to print dollar bills. For instance, the average total of what a customer was pumping at a gas station was coming to $2 and would make it real easy for the gas station attendants. The bills retained the same portrait, that of Thomas Jefferson, that had been discontinued in 1966. To celebrate the United States Bicentennial in this year, John Trumbull's Declaration of Independence replaces what was Thomas and Jefferson's house Monticello on the 1966 bill and now is a picture of the signing of the declaration. Final run is printed in 1978. What's wrong with the two dollar bill right? It just seems odd. It's a quirky note. Sometimes it's even called like Dirty Tom when it's in circulation more. Prices are lower, and certain criminal activities, say drugs and things like that, prostitution and things like that, might be purchased with $2. Just seem to fit into that price of something naughty. It doesn't have that negative reputation, really, anymore. It's just kind of a neat trick. There's even um, a whole blog about $2 bills. There's about a billion dollars of $2 bills in circulation, but you just don't see them that often. It makes up about 3% of U.S. bills in circulation today. According to one blog, David Grohl from the Foo Fighters is a big fan of $2 bills. About six years ago, I was at this art convention where all these artists got together and they were selling stuff. And I was going around looking at all the different stalls of people's work. And there was this one stall that was this Japanese photographer who had these beautiful prints, black and white stuff. And he made these little cards. It was really cool. I was standing there waiting to pay for the stuff I wanted to buy. And standing next to me was the singer of Devo. And he was paying for his thing with $2 bills. And I looked at him and said, oh man, you don't want to give these away, do you? And he said, oh, I always use $2 bills. Something's happening in Austin, Texas, when you hit 1970. This had been a redneck town with a small state government and a state university. Hippies and cowboys are drinking beer. Everybody's hair is long. Even the local yokel rednecks have long hair. Music is on every corner. Streets are full of bars. Some of them are concrete slabs with bands on top of them. Bars are open till 2 a.m., Texas has recently changed its drinking law, so 18-year-olds are drinking. And by the standard of IDing in those days, that meant plenty of 16-year-olds are drinking. There's a low cost of living, which really makes it easy for musicians to come in town. And you can come to town. Everybody has had a Willie Nelson sighting. I saw him at the Armadillo, IBM is the first major company to see that there's a nice talent pool here with students from the University of Texas. The new council are long-haired hippies, and it has to be the most diverse council in the state of Texas. African-American, Hispanic, women. The mayor, Jerry Friedman, is Jewish, and he's from New York. He was still a college student when he got elected to the city council. Now he's running the town. The 26th Amendment hits Austin, and 18-year-olds can vote. And when the events at Kent State happened in 1970, there's a huge protest that goes through the town. And the authorities realize there's very little they can do with the kind of numbers that are in the town. So the activists take notice of this and say, we can turn this into political power. And eventually, by 1974, they do. Uh, Jerry Friedman as mayor introduces public notices of land developments, better policing, he also creates an electric utility commission. We're going to argue about these things. I'm not, a, I'm not against development, Friedman says, but we're going to argue about these things. And we accept people here in Austin at face value. It's funny because Austin will grow. It might be planned growth, but it will certainly grow. At this time in the 70s, Austin has 250,000 people, now has millions. And you can go down there and Somebody you will find talk your ear off about the days of the Chicken Shack and Charles Charlie's Playhouse, Skinny Dippers at the Hippie Hollow, or their latest Willie sighting. I recall my own trip. Uh, wasn't in the 70s, but a taxi driver that took me around in the 90s when I visited Austin at that time. And it seemed um, big then, and it's grown since then. That taxi driver told me, oh, Austin was great in the 70s. You know, San Francisco in the 60s, Austin in the 70s, Seattle in the 80s. I don't think he was wrong. Now people at Austin are advertising jobs on the radio, and I've had people take my taxi cab and, and say to me, pull over, I want to buy that house. I want to thank you for listening and just a reminder that the thing that helps the program most is if you can tell someone about it wherever, you know, on Twitter, I'm at at my hist, M-Y-H-I-S-T, Facebook, write a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, that helps the program if you can, and, um, you know, or even on your own blog or your own podcast. That wasn't something I said very often when I started the show. Now I will mention us on your own podcast. Thanks for listening.